Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, church. Good morning. The Lord is with you. I want to tell you about a man named William. For many years, William, as an adult, just felt like life was pressing on top of him, that he couldn't catch his breath for all the pressures that he was facing. He suffered deep depression much of his life, and then he would have times where it was lifted for a time, but that dark cloud of depression would always return. It was so heavy at times that he tried to take his own life several times. Once he hired a driver to take him to a river in London where he was planning to jump off a bridge and end his life, but the fog was so thick that night, the driver couldn't find his way and ended up having to drop him back off at home. Another time, he was facing a a really crucial examination for a job that he wanted very much, and he was so fearful of what he was facing there that he pulled a knife out and was going to plunge it in his own heart, but he just couldn't work up the courage to do it. Once he tried to hang himself and the rope broke, once he took an overdose of drugs and woke up under medical care only to find he had survived it and life still had him by the throat. He even tried to run away. He was going to run away and change his name and live in a monastery the rest of his life in peace, he thought, but he never could work up the courage to carry out that plan. His name was William Cooper, and he experienced a long, lifelong battle with depression. But he eventually contributed immeasurably to the life of the church. He became a poet and a hymn writer. Four of his hymns are in our hymn book. You've sung those, several of them, particularly this one. He wrote, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Cooper wrote those songs. Many of God's greatest servants suffered periods of darkness and deep depression. That's helpful to know that God worked through those life. Martin Luther was one of those. He wrote one time, I have been close to the gates of death and hell, shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. Charles Spurgeon, who may have been one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, certainly one of the great orators of the world, sometimes lived weeks under shadows of deep depression and despond despondency. Mother Teresa, surprisingly, struggled with depression and doubt nearly all of her life in ministry. She once wrote this, I want to smile even at Jesus and so hide, if possible, the pain and darkness of my soul from him. We see people and we don't know what's going on below the surface oftentimes. It was true of biblical heroes as well. Moses prayed to die after a period in which his leadership of Israel failed to keep them from rebelling against God. He just asked God to take his life. Job, in the midst of all that spiritual and physical and emotional pain of his own life, cursed the day of his birth and requested God just to take his life. Prophet Jonah 
in his frustration and disobedience and darkness, prayed that God would end his life. David wrote psalms that uh, sometimes have the deepest sense of darkness to them. One-third of the psalms in the book of Psalms are called laments, and they are those psalms in which the psalmist is praising God out of the, these deep places in life. Jeremiah, bless his heart, after 40 years of fruitless preaching, just told God one day, I just want to quit. I want to die. Would you just take my life? It's not worth it. And then he said, even when I tried to do that, God's word in me was like fire in my bones and I couldn't stop. Some 10 to 14 million people at any given time in this country suffer from severe clinical depression that deeply interferes with their relationships, their health, their life. They live with a sense of guilt or fear or helplessness and hopelessness. When they finally go to sleep at night, they leave behind a deep sense of sadness only to find that it's there waiting for them when they wake up in the morning. That's a real experience of 14 million people on a regular basis. They often live their lives on the verge of tears. They face insomnia, fatigue, aches and pains, chronic illnesses, and everything in life that once gave them pleasure seems no longer to do so. And in our world, many try to end their lives. Someone dies from suicide every 11 minutes. And for the first time in recent generations, life expectancy in this country is actually declining largely due to the increase of suicide. According to the Center for Disease Control, there are 1.2 million people attempted suicide last year, and 46,000 were successful. Suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in our country. That's saying something. And veterans, whom we honored this weekend, have a 57% higher risk of suicide than the average citizen, something like 1.5 times the national average. I want to say at the outset, before we get to Elijah's story, that this kind of depression is a serious illness. It becomes chronic and brain chemicals get out of balance. And it's not, this kind of depression is not cured by good advice, by praying your way out, by exercising your way out, by changing your diet or listening to a sermon. Those things do not provide quick fixes to serious depression. Severe lasting depression is a symptom that requires something to be adjusted in our life and it requires treatment. And if any you know are dealing with that, encourage them to find help. There are things that can be done and it is a disease that can be treated. There's been a recent suicide hotline added to the quick dials like we can call 911, you can call 988 and it is a suicide hotline. So I, I say all that to say, when we talk about Elijah's experience in just a minute, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I don't believe there are five easy steps to get out of that. I think it requires treatment, and I encourage people who struggle with that to know you're not alone and that there are people ready and able to help you with that. I want that to be really, really clear. But even if we don't deal with clinical depression in our life, there's not a one of us that doesn't know what it's like to have dark days or dark weeks or dark months. All kinds of things can contribute to that in our life and, and we may need to know, where's God in the middle of all that? What am I supposed to do with those times like that? My mother used to say sometimes, uh, she would say, my mother told me there would be days like this, she just didn't tell me what to do about it. 
So uh, what do we do when those times come and we face that? It's a normal human reaction. The book of James in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 17, speaks about Elijah and his prayer life. But he says of Elijah, Elijah was a human being like us. And that's helpful to remember. These great people that we magnify, Martin, Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Mother Teresa, Moses, Jeremiah, all of these, they were human beings. And they faced the same kinds of things that we face, though they may have lived a long time before us. Elijah faced those things because he was a human being. <clears throat> the Elijah stories in the Bible are great stories. There's a whole lot of them. It's important to know the time in which Elijah the prophet was called to serve the nation Israel, the northern kingdom. The son of Amri, Ahab, was king of Israel. <clears throat> and in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, uh, the scripture writer says of uh, Ahab, the king, he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone who had gone before him. He was a wicked king. One of the worst things he did among many was that he married a foreigner named Jezebel, and she came and brought to Israel all of her foreign gods, the worship of Baal, the god of the thunderstorm, the god of fertility, and Ashtoreth. And she brought that worship with her. She brought her prophets with her. They set up altars all through the place. And this was the worst of sins in Israel is idolatry, to put anything, other God, before God. You shall have no other gods before me, the Lord had said to his people. It's part of our covenant, part of our agreement. And yet Israel had permeated the, the kingdom with these uh, prophets and with these sites and these priests to worship Baal, the god of the thunderstorm. And so God sent judgment, and he announced that judgment through his prophet Elijah. Elijah sent word to King Ahab, you're worshiping the god of the thunderstorm. Let me tell you, there's going to be no rain in this place without me saying so. No more rain. I wonder if he's wandering in Texas somewhere. I'm not sure. But Ahab... You can't depend on your God to provide the fertility you need and the rain for the land because you are worshiping false gods and there's no more rain to come. And so drought hit that land for three years and it infuriated Ahab that he had this prophet living in the country who was opposed to him in this way. One day, uh, Elijah sent word to Ahab it says, we're going to bring an end to the, to the drought, but first we're going to have a God contest. I want you to assemble all of your prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and, and assemble the people of Israel as well. And we're going to find out whose God is really God. We're going to find out how powerful Baal really is and how powerful Yahweh really is. And so this huge assembly takes place at Mount Carmel there on the coast. And they set up the rules for the contest. They, the prophets of Baal would build an altar and sacrifice a, a bull upon it. And uh, Elijah would do the same. And they would call upon their God to consume that altar and that offering by fire. And Elijah would do the same. And we will see the God that answers by fire, that's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal went first and they built their altar and they put their wood on it and they put their sacrifice upon it. And 450 of them are crying out to God and cutting themselves all day long. Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. Crying out and nothing happens. And finally, Elijah goes, you know, it's getting late. You guys have had all day. It's my turn. 
So he builds his altar, puts a sacrifice on it, and then douses it with water repeatedly until there's water flowing all around it. And then he looks heavenward and he says, Lord, would you show us who God is? He prays a little short prayer and fire falls from heaven. Lightning strikes the altar and consumes the water, the sacrifice, the wood, the rocks, and everything just explosively with a bolt of lightning. Baal, the god of the thunderstorm, could not send a lightning bolt. But Yahweh, the god of heaven and earth, consumes the altar. Then Elijah turned and ordered those 450 prophets of Baal to be slaughtered, and they were killed there. And then he went and looked out across the Mediterranean and saw this little tiny cloud, and it started moving toward them, and a huge thunderstorm was on its way. And Elijah has been incredibly successful as a prophet this day. I mean, this is winning the big game, right? This is everything. He has demonstrated before all Israel who truly is God. Jezebel was angry. And she sent a messenger to Elijah and said, I know what you did to my prophets, and by this time tomorrow, you're going to be just like them. She threatened his life. And suddenly, this one who had stood so boldly before the king and before the crowds and called down fire from heaven cowers in fear. He just crumbled. And he began to run and try to get away. And he finally gets himself out in the desert and he's underneath this little tree for a little bit of shade and he's exhausted and he falls down and he, he prays to God and says, Lord, would you just take my life? I'm not worth anything anymore. I can't go on. I can't do this. Would you just kill me? He just fell into the depths of despondency. He didn't really want to die. If he had done, wanted to die, he would have stayed and Jezebel would have taken care of that. He was just in the pits of his life, one of those dark places. And God responds to his prophet here in a variety of ways. First of all, he says, uh, why don't you lay down and take a nap? And Elijah rests. And when he woke up, there was some food there waiting for him, hot food. He says, rise up and eat. And Elijah got up and he ate. And then he said, why don't you go back to sleep? And he took another nap and he woke up and there was some more food. He says, now, I want to meet you out in the wilderness. I want you to go to Mount Horeb. And in the strength of the food that he'd received there, he went a long journey all the way to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there he went into a cave and he's still wondering what to do. And the Lord said, go stand at the face of the cave and he asked, he asked Elijah a question. Elijah, what are you doing here? And he said, well, I'm here because I'm so zealous for the Lord of hosts and I stood up for you and I, we killed all the prophets of Baal and, and, and Jezebel seeking my life and I'm, I'm running in fear of my life. The Lord said, look out the mouth of the cave. And he looked out and there was suddenly an earthquake and rocks were falling everywhere. But it says that he didn't sense the Lord in the earthquake. And then there was a great wind, howling wind blowing by, that he didn't sense the Lord's presence in that howling wind. And then uh, following that, there was a fire fell from heaven, a lightning storm. And Elijah didn't sense the presence of God there. Where he sensed the presence of God was in what followed. There followed, it's hard to translate this, a still small voice is how the King James has it. The sound of sheer silence, that's how it is in the New Revised Standard Version. It is 
It was just pure silence. And there he heard the voice of God. And then the Lord comes back to him and asks him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he gave the same answer. Because I'm so zealous for the Lord of hosts and I took care of all those prophets and killed them and now Jezebel's seeking my life. And the Lord says, well, we need to get you reoriented. So he gives him an assignment to do, to go anoint Hazael as uh, king of Syria, to anoint uh, Jehu as king of Israel to succeed Ahab and to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet over Israel. And Elijah gets his life back on track. I think it's a useful thing to take a look at this kind of period of discouragement in the prophet's life and to think about those kinds of times when we feel that as well. Sometimes our sense of discouragement comes following a, a failure. We've tried something really hard and we've just not succeeded. Baylor fans understand that this morning. <laughs> and it's kind of a blow to our self-image. We've, we've tried, we've failed. Sometimes there's a loss. We've lost someone dear to us or something dear to us and the grief is overpowering and we just don't feel like we can go on right now. Sometimes it's fear that sends us into the dark place, fear of impending disaster, what could happen and what might happen, what's even likely to happen. And in our fright and fear, we seep into a, a dark place. Sometimes it's a loss of vision, a loss of direction. We don't know what to do next. Sometimes, like in Elijah's case, it, it's a huge success that having put all of our energy into something and succeeded in doing it the next day is like, well, what now? And we can find ourselves in a very low place, drained from an expensive success. Sometimes it's dashed expectations. We anticipated something happening and it never came to pass. All of those kinds of experiences are the things that can send us at times into a very dark place. And when we get to that place, as we sang a while ago in the song, though the night is very dark, God remains with us. And it's interesting to follow God's dealing with Elijah here. How does he deal with Elijah? Well, the first thing he does is he ignores Elijah's resignation. Uh, verse 3 and 4 of chapter 19, Elijah's overcome by this desire to quit. Uh, in verse 4, he says, He went a day's journey and came into the wilderness and sat down under a solitary broom tree. He asked that he might die. It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. I quit. My job is done. I don't want any more to deal with that. That desire to leave it all and end it all came when Elijah was physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted and weary. And he now abandons his only source of strength, who is God, and he prays to die. And God says, I'm not accepting your resignation. The Lord does that a lot with his servants. Moses tried to resign on a couple of occasions, and God said, no, you're the person I've called to do this. Jonah tried to resign, and the Lord wouldn't let that happen, had him back in Nineveh in no time, uh, having to carry out the assignment. Jeremiah attempted to resign repeatedly, uh, and he just never takes those things seriously. He doesn't take the words seriously. He takes his servant's heart seriously. He knows they're hurting. He knows they're struggling, but he doesn't allow them to resign. 
Uh, if Elijah, as I said, had wanted to die, he could have stayed in Samaria and Jezebel would have taken care of that. That desire to quit is a fairly constant human thing. We expend our energy, we expend our effort, and sometimes we've just had enough. Or if things aren't going the way we want, we just want to back off of it. You could look through American garages and attics and storage units and find all kinds of unfinished project, projects, right? You might have one or two at your house, unfinished paintings and half-written books. But we also find ourselves giving up on a marriage or giving up on a child or giving up on a, a career or a friendship. At some time or another, every single one of us have turned in our resignations on Monday morning. And when God gets the resignation, he often says, I hear, I know you're hurting. I know what's going on. I'm not accepting the resignation under those conditions. God takes Elijah's pain seriously, but not his words. He hears Elijah's cry deeper than the words that come from his lips. He hears Elijah's heart. And he does that with us as well. When we pour out our frustration to God, God is not offended by that. If the Psalms teach us anything, it is we can say anything we want to to God and God will hear. The Psalms teach us a language in which to pray. And if you start reading through the Psalms and learning that language, you find out you can tell God whatever you want. And God is perfectly big enough to absorb that, listen to that, hold us while we hurt, and stay with us rather than abandon us, even when we feel abandoned. He ignores Elijah's resignation. And then he addresses Elijah's physical needs, rest and food. You and I are whole persons. We are not body, soul, spirit, as if you could cut those things up into pieces. We are a, a whole and integrated person. And when our souls live so close to our bodies that the two of them are apt to catch each other's diseases at times, when the soul is in darkness and, and deep depression, the body responds to that. When the body is hurting and aching and diseased and sick or injured, our spirit and soul respond to that. When we are physically or emotionally spent, we're likely to experience physical aches and pains and sleeplessness and loss of appetite. When our body's not well, when we're not healthy, we have difficulty seeing the world clearly. But we go together like that. Here's Elijah, spiritually spent, emotionally spent, physically spent. And God's first thing is, why don't you take a nap and have a snack? That's a good idea. Our uh, best thing that we can do for ourselves in times of darkness is to make sure that we attend to the things physically that we need, our rest, our food, uh, and give ourselves a chance to replenish the health and vitality that God has for us. What are you eating? Where's your Sabbath rest? Where are you taking your day off? Where's your sleep, your exercise? Where do you have hobbies, alternative activities to give your mind to, to rest it a bit? Those are all places where we find health. And if we don't deal with those physical conditions at times, we find ourselves either becoming a basket case or a casket case. They are it's serious things to take care of. And so God attends to Elijah's physical care. 
And he attends to his spiritual needs. He says, Elijah, let's get you away in a place where you and I can meet and we can talk. God knows that man does not live by bread alone. And Elijah is taken from the desert, this place of testing, to the mountain, which is always the place of encounter with God, right? And so he's off to Mount Sinai, and there God lovingly confronts him. What are you doing here? I want to show you my presence. I want you to know I'm with you. I've got work for you to do. He addresses his spiritual needs. One of the other things God does with Elijah that I, I think is important for us to hear is that he invites Elijah's honesty, that question. Elijah, what are you doing here? How often you find that with God dealing with his people in the biblical stories. He comes to Adam after Adam and Eve have chosen disobedience, and he says, Adam, where are you? It wasn't that God couldn't find him. God knew perfectly well where Adam was. He wasn't even asking where he was physically located. He's saying, what's happened to our relationship? Adam, I'm asking you a question. Here's a chance for you to respond to me. After Cain kills his brother Abel, God confronts him and says, where is your brother Abel? He gives him an opportunity to, to express himself, to, to claim what he's done, to confess it. And here, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And Elijah's pretty honest. He says, well, I'm scared to death, honestly. I tried to be faithful to you, and in my zeal for you, I, I've offended Jezebel. Now she's after me, and I'm afraid. That's why I'm here. Why are you here in this dark place? That's a question God might bring to us. Why are you here? Because I've failed? Because I'm exhausted? Because I feel guilty for something I've done? because I'm afraid, because I've lost something so important to me, because I'm so angry I could spit? I, why are you here? God asked that question not in a condemning way. It's an invitation that says, tell me about it. Talk to me. Bring it to me. Name it so it can be dealt with. Confess it if it needs to be forgiven. Sometimes God just places his hand on our shoulder and says, do you need to shed some tears? You want to talk about this? One of the things I learned about grief is, from a grief counselor, is the phrase was, grief needs a voice. We need to talk about the things we've lost. We need to talk about the places we hurt to somebody who cares. And maybe prayer and journaling are ways that we can do that to express some of that. But sometimes we need somebody with flesh on that we can talk to. God invites Elijah's honesty. He doesn't ask him to be dishonest about what's going on inside of him. And then God teaches Elijah that he's present in all of life's experiences. That Hebrew phrase that I mentioned is so difficult to translate, still small voice, a faint murmuring sound, the Revised English Bible says, a, a tiny whispering sound, the New American Bible says, a sound of fine silence, Jerome's biblical commentary, or the sound of sheer silence, New Revised Standard. God comes in earthquake, lightning, wind, and finally this stillness. It wasn't the fireworks. The gentle breeze contained as much of God's presence and power as the howling wind of the hurricane. It doesn't take an earthquake to make a soul shake. It is God's presence that is real, even in the quietness, the silence, and the darkness. And a part of the secret Elijah had to learn that is that it's important to it's important to know the absence of the tangible displays of God's presence does not mean the absence of God. Let me say that again. 
The absence of the tangible displays of God's presence, earthquake, wind, lightning, does not mean the absence of God in that still, small voice. God teaches Elijah that he's present in all of those experiences. And God's teaching us something here. We're not to let the darkness and the depression and the despondency and the discouragement drive us away from God. We need to find the mountain. We need to feel the gentle breeze. We need God's spirit to help us find our way out of that place of darkness, though it may last for a time. And then God adjusts uh, Elijah's perspective. Our perspectives get so skewed when we're in this condition, don't we? We just see a tunnel vision and all we can see is the problem or whatever it is. And Elijah here, <laughs> he says this to God a couple of times. Why are you here, Elijah? I've done this. I've been zealous for the Lord and I alone am left. I'm the only faithful Israelite left. I'm the only one. He felt that way. Um, God comes to him in verse 18, and well, listen to this. It says in verse 18, um, yet, this is the Lord speaking, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're only about one seven thousandth correct in your estimate of where things are. You've got 6,999 companions out there who have not bowed to Baal or kissed him. Uh, you, you need to adjust your perspective a bit. God still has lots of servants. God's not in a panic over what's going on in Israel. The Lord is still Lord, and you are part of a much larger story than just yourself. It is so possible that for us, normal for us, when we get into dark places to just see ourself and not to know that there's something bigger taking place. Elijah got his perspective adjusted. Leonard Sweet, who uh, creative soul, uh, commenting on this story, says, what Elijah and many of us lose sight of is that it's not about us. It's about God. Let's eat right and exercise and do all that stuff, but let's be quiet and listen. Much of what passes for spiritual exhaustion Sometimes a little more than self-pity. We just get sunk into that place. And so there's two important uh, pieces to this higher perspective God offers Elijah. One is God is still present. And second, you're not alone. And those are things that we need to, to grasp. God helps Elijah adjust his perspective. And then he recommissions Elijah to serve. He says, there's more work to be done, verses 15 through 17. I've got some assignments for you. I want you to go find Hazael and anoint him. He's going to be the next king of Syria. I want you to find Jehu, and I want you to anoint him because the dynasty of Amri is going to end with Ahab, and Jehu is going to be the next king. Anoint him. And then I want you to find Elisha and anoint him as prophet to take your place after you're gone. You, you have work to do. He gives him some new assignments, a new vision of what's going on, and uh, we go with God and do it. That's what Elijah learned. Spiritual unemployment sometimes can be part of our problem. We weren't made to be idle in the world, and we need a sense that we are participating in what God is doing in the world. And that is one of the ways of re-engaging. He recommissions Elijah to serve. I want to repeat 
that there aren't any one, two, three easy answers or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven easy steps out of clinical depression, serious chronic depression. Treatment and therapy would be in order there and encourage. But our ordinary responses, our acute experiences of sadness and depression, our ordinary responses to loss or success or failure or, uh, that bring about these periods of darkness are things we need to bring to God. We need to work through with God. That's what his servants in the Bible always did. They turned to God with that. Jeremiah, and Moses, and Jonah, and Elijah, and the, and the psalmist. As I said, a third of the psalms are all about praying to God when we are in the pit and letting God become part of lifting us up. Maybe God's dealings with Elijah can help us think through those times in our life or maybe help someone else who is in one of those periods of acute darkness. Could we hear again from William Cooper? He learned to find in God's presence the power to overcome this dark night of the soul. One of the hymns that he wrote, one of the hymns that's in our hymnal, is called Sometimes a Light Surprises. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. Cooper found that out in his own life. Encourage you, take your discouragement, your disappointment, your despondency to God. Find the physical and spiritual renewal that can restore you to God's joy and kindness and peace and restore you to effective service in the kingdom. Don't stay on the bench on the sideline too long, but long enough to experience it and to know God even in the darkness because he's there. Let's pray together. I don't uh, often do this, but with our heads bowed, please. I want to ask before I pray, if there are any in here that just say, Pastor, I'm in one of those dark places right now in my life, and I'd like you to include me in your prayer. I won't point you out or call you or any way. I just like to give you a chance to say, pray for me. If you'd lift a hand up and say, include me in that, I certainly will do it. All right. Our Father, you know our lives better than we do, certainly better than we know one another's. And we lift up to you, first of all, our brothers and sisters that are in this room whose lives are hurting in one way or another, that there's a kind of darkness and despair. For those for whom that is just uh, a temporary but acute and, and difficult period, I, I lift them to you and pray they would find you dealing with them personally much as you dealt with your servant Elijah. And I pray for those who are among us today that are living in a dark place and have been for a long time, that you would help them to find the ability to look for the the healing that you can bring there and to turn to those resources that would most help. Lord, thank you that you do not abandon us in darkness. You do not leave us on our own. That you never, though we may not be able to perceive you, you never leave us. We ask you to help us to learn to trust in that reality. 
And God, do what you need to do in all our lives to align our lives with your purposes and your will and your work in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.